He takes away the fear of the unknown when it comes to medical malpractice claims. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Attorney James W. Saxton. Mr. Saxton has over 25 years' experience defending healthcare professionals and is chairman of the Litigation and Risk Management Department of Stevens and Lee Law Firm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He is also author of the new book, The Satisfied Patient, a guide to preventing malpractice claims by providing excellent customer service. Mr. Saxton, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Susan, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. When an adverse event occurs, how do you tell the patient? Susan, this is a very important topic, and it's something in which there's some new research on. When things go wrong, patients and their families actually need their doctor more than ever. And in years gone by, there was almost a sense sometimes, and and perhaps driven by some risk managers and some insurance companies, that the doctor should be very careful about what they say about the adverse event. And I think some were told, don't say much of anything. What we've learned is good communication and empathy is essential after an adverse event. In fact, we say those words, those common words, I'm sorry, are very, very important. Now, important to recognize that I'm sorry that something has occurred is very different than I'm responsible, I apologize. That's really for a very distinct subset of adverse events, one in which you've done due diligence and, in fact, you are responsible. Wrong site surgery, for example. But most adverse events are not due to anyone's fault, and the doctor should be empathetic and reach out to the family and explain what they know and explain that there's more information to come and that they want to share it with them. So the doctor needs to reach out, needs to be empathetic. There's nothing wrong with saying that they're sorry, but keep it in context. I'm sorry your mom's in the ICU. I want to talk to you about what we're doing for her. I want to talk to you about what we think happened, that type of thing. And, and that's, that's important. And there's really a lot of studies out there that are showing that that can be very effective. What is the true cost of a malpractice claim? You know, I will tell you it's underestimated. And I think the public doesn't realize how devastating these cases are. The, the true cost is not your insurance premium. And the fact that if you have a claim, unfortunately, your insurance premium may go up, that, that's not the true cost. The true cost is the time and energy that these doctors lose. And, and further, in my experience, and, you know, I've been in the courtroom, you know, 50, 60, 70 times with these doctors, and fortunately those cases have gone well, but still it just goes to the heart of what these doctors do. They're doing what they do because they truly care about people. And, boy, when there's a claim that alleges that they harmed someone, I really think it it, it hurts them in a way that, that many of us do not understand. What do you tell your doctor clients who are going through a lawsuit? Well, I try to get them very organized, and I try to really empower them with information. 
I think what we all worry about is what we don't understand. We are uncomfortable with the unknown. And certainly the courtroom is a real unknown to our doctors. And so I really take them through a level 100 and a level 200 educational process about what is litigation? What's the process that they're going to go through? How long is it going to take? If they go to court, I literally have a DVD, uh, in which we've had done, which shows them the courtroom and shows them bits and pieces of the process to try to make them more comfortable about this process, because that's going to help them. In your book, you write about making a case less appealing to a plaintiff's attorney. What do you mean? Well, let's be honest about this. Plaintiff's lawyers are in this business for one reason. That's money. That's that's why they take cases, and and boy, there's a lot of money that's made. Uh, A lot of plaintiff's lawyers get up to 40% of these settlements or verdicts. So this is about big dollars. They evaluate cases. They make business decisions about which cases they want to invest in because it's a big investment for them. So when they see a case where there's what we call the plus factor, meaning you know, what they're looking at is not just the malpractice, but the behavior surrounding the malpractice. If someone was rude, if a doctor didn't return phone calls, if they can make it look like an alleged cover-up, those are the cases that jurors return huge dollars. If that happened and they hear that, they're more likely to take that case and really invest in it. How should physicians approach documentation? Well, they have to look at documentation as the evidence. I mean, that's what it is. And so we tell our doctors, you've got to write clear documentation about important issues like history. Informed consent is critical, and we've developed a second-generation informed consent form, which is procedure-specific, because in this day and age, in, in courtrooms around the country, there's technology, and these documents, and here's what your listeners have to realize, these documents are blown up on huge screens or on computer screens in front of every juror's seat. And so when they're jotting down that note, you've got to think about that, that that's going to be the evidence. The evidence can either be used by you to derail a lawsuit, or it can be used against you. And I think if they realized that, we'd spend a, a little more time being a little clearer and probably more importantly, using some of these good documentation tools that have been developed over the last couple of years. Mr. Saxton, would you describe some of these tools? As I mentioned, there's a new informed consent form that doctors really all over the country are using, and it has an introductory paragraph telling patients how important informed consent is, telling patients not to sign the form until they understand the risks and alternatives and all their questions have been answered. The forms are procedure-specific because it's different from neurosurgery and cardiology, and so it really helps to capture a good informed consent. That's the type of tool we've got to start using. And are these readily available for doctors to access? In fact, in, in the book that we've been talking about, there's examples of them. And where can listeners get a copy of the book? It's published by HC Pro, and that's www.hcpro.com. And are there other tools in the book? There's about a dozen tools in the book. And so I think a lot of physicians around the country 
uh, really have, go- have gotten the book so that they can literally download the tools and use them right in their practice. How can physicians recognize when they're at risk? Well, there's some things that are very simple. When patients come and they're already angry, some patients literally talk about their anger, about health care, about their doctor. I mean, that's, that's a red flag. But it's not the biggest group. The biggest group of patients that put doctors at risk are patients who don't understand. You see, Susan, their expectations are sky high. So if we don't take the time to get their expectations sort of in line with reality, that patient is going to put you at great risk because they're not thinking they're going to be the patient that's going to have that complication. This is why informed consent is so important because informed consent brings those risks down. But that, that's the biggest group. Patients who don't understand their care, do not understand how important compliance is, do not understand that there's real risks with surgical procedures. Those patients put you at risk. What's your frontline advice for physicians who may be going on very little sleep, they're under a lot of pressure, they're behind seeing patients, they enter a room and the family starts to yell at them and their blood boils, they want to react and defend themselves. You know, we really teach doctors in our communication programs that that's going to happen. When it happens, it's more important than ever to take control of the situation. And you don't take control by getting angry. You take control by taking a deep breath, by sitting down, by acknowledging their anger, by listening to them, and not all the time. I mean, I'm not going to say it's 100% of the time, but I'm telling you, the majority of the time, by acting in that fashion, not fighting fire with fire, but taking control and starting to diffuse the patient, listening to them, acknowledging the issue, determining is there a plan to make it better. I mean, more often than not, you could almost see the patient, you know, start to relax a little bit because most of them don't want to be angry. Most of them want some information. Most of them want to vent a little bit and they want someone to listen to them. Mr. Saxton, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your new book, The Satisfied Patient, a guide to preventing malpractice claims by providing excellent customer service. Thank you very much. Always enjoy it. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening.